Imagine you hear the lightning and the rain is just driving down. The river is at a flood stage. And you hear a small, quiet, desperate, distant voice, help. And you look upstream and there you just catch a glimpse of some, some body bobbing up and down, grasping for breath, and a, a, a large tree has fallen out over the, the raging waters, and you begin to crawl out on the tree as you see this body approaching, and you're trying to line up and be just in the right place to help this person, and this person is getting closer and closer and closer, and finally get, there's just this brief instant, this tiny little moment in time, where what once was just a desperate body, now is somebody, and you can see and you can tell if it's a male or a female. You can see the color of hair. You can realize kind of the ethnic background, the age, whether young or old. And in this split moment, you must decide, will I save this life? Does this life matter? to me. Would you pray with me? God, we are tackling a tough question today as we think about life and what it means to have a view of life that you hold for us. And so God, it's been my prayer that today, not only would you teach us, but you would change us, every single person here because of your scripture and your work in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, so my name is Brian, and I get to be preaching uh, during this series with you here, work at the uh, church here, and uh, just love our Tough Question series. We do this every year, and you can see on the front of your uh, bulletin, we've already covered a couple of tough questions, and they're going to keep on going here for several weeks. And today the question is, how would Jesus define pro-life? And I know when I even say those words, they spark some emotions for different people. And I just want to tell you that there's some good news. God loves you. Okay? God cares for you. God is the great healer. He's the great forgiver. And so regardless of what your emotion is, God loves you and cares for you. Let's start with that. And then we'll move forward from there. And I also hope that you'll be open today to thinking about the idea of pro-life being larger than any just one issue. Uh, I want to kind of go from a large umbrella view here. And if you have your Bibles, if you can be turning to Genesis chapter 4, that's going to be our key text today. And while you're turning there, let me just dive in to the first of three truths we want to unpack today. And it's this, our world's coldness for lives is devastating. Psalm 142.4 says, Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. And David real David's reality has become the reality of many people who feel like they have no refuge. They are refugees without hope, without help. No one cares for their life. And many people in this world feel something like that. And the truth is, we need to start off here just a little bit depressing. <laughs> because our world's coldness for lives is devastating. AD 180, Roman Emperor Commodus played the part of gladiator. But because he lacked skill, 
He brought opponents in who had handicap or were amputees from the army, and he slaughtered them in the Colosseum to his own glory. He had a coldness for lives, and it was devastating. September 3rd, 2017, a man purposefully targets and drives his truck over three homeless people in downtown, Target, in, in downtown Tulsa. A coldness for lives. Savannah, Georgia, 1861, Alexander Stevens, vice president of the Confederate States of America, recorded in the local paper, it wrote this of his speech. African slavery was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. Our new government, its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. And the newspaper even records there was applause. A coldness for lives. Early 1900s, the president of the United States was quoted as this. I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are dead Indians, but I believe nine out of ten are. A coldness for lives. A few decades later, a German newspaper wrote, those humans were targeted by Nazis who were identified as a life unworthy of life including but not limited to Jewish people, criminals, degenerate, dissident, feeble-minded, and the weak. Hitler himself was quoted as saying, humanitarianism is the expression of stupidity and cowardice. July 7, 2016, a man opens fire on police officers in Dallas, Texas, officers there to protect demonstrators. As we sit here today, thousands of Rohingya Muslims are fleeing Myanmar. Most people haven't even heard of that. They're fleeing because there's ethnic cleansing going on. Thousands of people being killed. They're trying to get into Bangladesh, all at the hands of extreme, an extremist Buddhist government. A coldness for lives. Three weeks ago, CBS News tweeted, Iceland is on pace to virtually eliminate Down syndrome. That's not the end of the headline through abortion, as if there was a celebration to be had. The truth is there wasn't a medical breakthrough to eliminate Down syndrome in people. They were eliminating people who had Down syndrome. There's a difference, a coldness for lives. The United States has an estimated termination rate, the article said, for Down syndrome of 67%. 60 million abortions in the U.S. since Roe v. Wade. And we express sadness for lives lost, sadness for the women involved, sadness for fathers with guilt, sadness for a medical community, and sadness for a society hardened by the devaluing of life. Ladies, if this issue has impacted you, we want you to know that God loves you, and we love you too. And men, if this has impacted you, we want you to know that God loves you, and we love you, and your life matters Two, a good friend once asked, what's the big deal? Why, why does it even matter that you call yourself pro-life when it comes to the abortion issue? Because isn't it just kind of about the end game and kind of the results? And, and I said, it matters because Dred Scott matters to me too. If you um, know much about me, you know I have this great respect for my late grandfather. He was a judge, and he used to 
he told me a number of times, he said, Brian, the two greatest mistakes of our country when it comes to the judicial system was Dred Scott and Roe v. Wade, because he said both of them devalued life. Both of them said there are certain people who don't qualify for life, who don't deserve the same rights of life that everyone else did. He told me that a number of times. If you're not familiar with Dred Scott or flunked your history class or maybe got an A and have just forgotten, there was a man named Justice Taney. Before he was justice in 1819, he actually came out as condemning slavery. But his attitude hardened. And when he wrote the monumental case that would help propel our country to civil war, he wrote this of African Americans. As, as Supreme Court Justice, he wrote, They had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and so far unfit that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Listen, I'm all for reducing abortions, but I'll never be fully satisfied until we say that every life is really a life, and we actually put that in writing, because I think until we do, we will always have some sort of devaluing of life involved. If That's our core philosophy. And so whether we're talking about my own family who has a different skin color or we're talking about a child yet to be born or just born or an elderly person whose best years contributing to society may be behind them. I believe every life matters and is important and has value, not because of what they contribute to society, but because they were made and shaped by the hands of God. The Bible says you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that God knew you before you were even born. Imagine that, knitting you together, all of your quirks and your personality and the beauty that you could bring to this world. I, I like Nelson Mandela, and I would not want to disagree with him often. But there is this, just this one quote I want to bounce off of. You see what you think. He wrote this. It's a beautiful quote in many ways. He said, No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. I completely agree with that. People must learn to hate, and they can learn, if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. Yes, people can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Mm, that's where I'm not so sure. What does history tell us? History tells us, it seems to tell us, that hate comes more naturally than love. Just look around at her world. It's not going all that well, and it never really has. There's always been lots of hate. At least, at least we can agree with this. And quit thinking about somebody else and quit even thinking about the whole scope of history, but maybe just think of your own heart. What's its natural trajectory without Jesus' intervention? It's bitterness and jealousy and fighting. And when you look around at our world, we see that that is the natural inclination for people. It's why there's so much brokenness in our world. And the Bible says that we all have this problem with sin in us. It talks about the foolish, foolishness even of youth. And so we are at least inclined towards that. Okay, that's the depressing part of the sermon. Let's get to point two, please. The second truth is this. 
God's compassion for lives is shocking. So that's where I want to get to Genesis chapter 4. Verse, going to begin in verse 2. So you've got Adam and Eve, and then the second generation. We have Cain and Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will will not you be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. We could do a whole sermon on, those, on that verse right there. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. It only took two generations for us to start killing each other. Only two. And violence breaks out. Cain could have repented when God said, hey, I see a problem here. He could have done the right things and he could have repented. And he, he could have turned it around. But instead, he let that bitterness grow and that jealousy grow and that anger grow. And when we let sin, when we give sin a foothold, oh, it can make us do the ugliest of things. And so Cain takes his own brother and he kills him. And God says, Cain, where's, where's Abel? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Now, I hear that verse quoted sometimes. And oftentimes I hear it completely misquoted because we quote it like, the answer is like, yeah, I'm not responsible for my brother. But if you read the text, you're quoting a murderer here. (laughs) And the answer in the text and the answer through the whole scope of the Bible is you are your brother's keeper and not just your brother, but your sister and your mom and dad and your kids and your neighbor and the stranger and even your enemy. Look around you, to your right, to your left. Go ahead. You can look at the people around you, behind you, in front of you. You are their keeper. It's not 100% up to you. You don't have all of the responsibility, but you have some of the responsibility to be their keeper to care for them, and to love them, and to watch out for them, to be their keeper. And so as you think about your life and all the people God has placed in your life, God says, you are their keeper. And God says, Cain, can can you hear it? 
your brother's blood crying from the ground? That's not a threat. I believe that's a reality. Because when someone is violent to someone else, there's, there's two victims there. There's the perpetrator and there's the victim. Both are victims in some ways because everyone is a victim when there's violence like that. You don't think Cain, later in life, could still hear the sound of the rock thudding into Abel's head? You don't think that he could hear Abel's last gasp as he tried to go to sleep at night? You don't think that that bothered him later in life? Every time we begin to hate someone, we become a victim as well to our own evil. It haunts us and hunts us down. And God said, listen, listen to your brother. But verse 15 is the most shocking at all, of all. Because a good book, a good movie, Cain, what happens to him? The earth swallows him up. A tiger attacks him. Bad things happen. That's a good book. That's a good movie. And sometimes those things do happen. But it's not what happens in this story. Because God says, hey, Cain, you're not going to believe this, but guess what? Your life still matters to me. That I'm not going to let people kill you just because you were a killer. That your life still matters to me. You still have value to me. And some of you are here today and you have all this guilt about what you've done to other people or how you've thought about other people. And I hope you'll read verse 15 because God looks at you and he says, your life still has value to me as well. I still love you even though you don't deserve it. And God still loves me even when I've been careless with the lives of other people. If you're taking notes in your sermon page, You need to add something to point two. Because point two is that, you know, God's care for our lives is shocking. His compassion is shocking. But we need to add to that, and our our care and compassion for other lives ought to be shocking too. Because how God treats people is how we ought to treat. After the troubling mess in Charlottesville, I uh, heard a lady, she's Christian, African-American, joyful, She's a peacemaker, and she was asked to respond to some of the events, and she said, she said, can I just be honest about something that's hurtful? And I said, yeah, sure. And she said, sometimes when I've been mistreated, and it's been prejudicial mistreatment in the past, or when somebody close to me, that's happened to them, or when an event has happened uh, in, in the news, and I'm really troubled by that, and I've told somebody else that, she said, oftentimes what I'm told is, well, that's just the media blowing it out of proportion. Or that's just someone's political agenda. And it's just somebody who's trying to do this. And what she hears when people say that is, I value my agenda more than I value you. And we dismiss her. And she said, I, she said, I realize that sometimes I do that to people too. That I value policy above people. Remember when Jesus... Uh, was with his disciples on the Sabbath. He said, you can go and pick some grain and eat it. And later there's a, there's a man who needs healed. He's in, he's in a desperate spot, and Jesus heals him. What do the Pharisees do? They're mad, and they're angry. How could you do this on the Sabbath? And you know what Jesus says? I'll summarize. Because I value people over your policy. Th- that Jesus saying, I- I'm not disobeying God here. I'm not breaking God's rules and commands. They matter to Jesus, okay? Don't get me wrong. They matter to Jesus. But, but Jesus is saying, I value and God values people 
over your petty little policies. And I think as a church, as we learn to value people over our own agenda and policies, it's a way of saying, I value your life, that you, value, that you have value to me. I heard something at a conference this summer. Uh, I got to be on a panel of people that was talking about different issues, and I was representing Black Box International, which Highland Park supports and helps boys who have been rescued out of sex trafficking. And uh, one of the other people on the panel, um, their church does lots of stuff. Um, They're up in Chicago with immigrants, and they have a a huge – in fact, they have, like, services in, like, I don't know, eight or nine different languages and stuff and different ethnic groups kind of meeting there. Uh, and it's a, it's a really beautiful ministry. And um, somebody in the audience had asked him a question. Uh, and he said, you know, one of the things that happens is we just hear so much stuff um, negative about immigrants. And these are my friends. And he said, for one, people don't realize, do you know that there's more Christian refugees than Muslim refugees? Not that we should only love Christians and not Muslims, but just a little fact that most people don't really talk about very much. But he said, you know, the people that, I'm, that, that are around me, they, they love this country and they, they want to be good to this country and we try to support them in every way that we, that we can and we, we help them with their paperwork and, and all of this and we encourage them to follow all of the laws of this land. And sometimes things just hit a snafu. He said he knew one person who had um, been brought here when when he was um, very young, and his parents kind of messed up some of the paperwork. And here he was 24 years later. His case had been held up in immigration court for over two decades. So what are you supposed to do with him? My preacher friend said, you know, at that point, it's people over policy. We encouraged him to do all the right things. But we love this person because it's a person, because we value people over a political policy. And it doesn't mean that policies are bad. Policies can be very good. We want to fight for the best ones. But we just need to value people and see people first, to see that that person bobbing down the river is a person, that we have an opportunity to throw our hand out towards them. Micah 6 says, And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Psalm 82 says, Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. In the first couple centuries, there was a common practice where if somebody felt like they could not care for their baby, where they did not want their baby, they would just leave babies on the streets or on a garbage pile, and they would walk away. They wouldn't kill the baby because they felt like that would be wrong. So it was a passive-aggressive murder that was happening. And they would just leave the baby somewhere. And you know who came to their rescue? The church. It is documented that it was Christians who would scour the cities, listening for the cries of an infant. And they would take those infants into their homes at great cost to themselves, great sacrifice, and they would raise these children as their own. That's what it is to be pro-life, to see people as God sees people. A couple weeks ago, we had a panel up here of uh, experts in the foster care area, and that was a great Sunday. And this incredible thing happened. There's a small group, men's Bible study, that approached me afterwards, and they said, hey, 
if you hear of Highland Park parents who are involved in foster care, and if they need something, would you just let us know? That's pro-life. That's the church. That's what God has called us to be. Because every life matters, and God believes your life matters. Rich, poor, old, young, unborn, brunette, redheaded, black-haired and blondes, Republican, Democrat, Independent, Green Party, Tea Party, Libertarian, and even librarians. Traffic children... (laughs) Traffickers, enslaved, slave owners, CEOs, homeless, arrogant bosses, lazy workers, sleazy politicians, noble kings, and stay-at-home parents. God even cares for the lives of those who sit on the right side and the left side and the, the overflow, the cry room, the nursery, the sub, and even a few of the people who sit in the balcony. God cares for people. He cares for all people. Black lives matter, immigrant lives matter, blue lives matter, Jewish lives matter, homeless lives matter, refugee lives matter, women's lives matter, men's lives matter, your life matters, the lives of Planned Parenthood employees matter, every life matters. All those people I quoted at the beginning, and you're like, oh, I hate that quote, their life matters. And yes, sometimes it's okay to even draw special attention to one life. It's okay to say Florida lives matter without the other 49 states being offended that they weren't mentioned too, okay? It's all right. It's all right for you to find some people and to care for them. I don't think that you can probably care for every problem in the world and every person. So find some people and care for them. That's okay. Help them. Let people know about them. And the third truth is just a wonderful truth. Jesus' ability to change your life is amazing. Romans 12 says that we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that God will do this great work in us to transform us so that I don't have to be the same and you don't have to be the same. I got permission from my friend Stacy. She's Dave and Roseanne's daughter, lives in Wichita, to share something she had written a few weeks ago. She wrote this. I cried in Wendy's yesterday. It's been a long, stressful week and I have not seen Kent, her husband, much. And we decided to meet for lunch at Wendy's between appointments and take a little time to connect. As I ate my bacon queso burger, don't judge, I skipped the bun so it was low carb, I glanced over Kent's right shoulder and I saw a man quietly shuffle in and sit down at the table directly behind us. He sat sideways in his chair and leaned against the railing behind him. So I could only see his profile. He never made eye contact with anyone. He looked a bit rough likely homeless, or close to it. He had not ordered anything. There were plenty of open tables, and he wasn't bothering a soul. Kent and I were wrapping up our conversation, and I suggested we might offer to buy a sandwich or a drink or something for the guy behind him. Kent hadn't seen him, so I was explaining the situation when out of nowhere, a manager appeared. This manager was not walking around the restaurant greeting people. We weren't at Chick-fil-A, after all. (laughs) No, he had zeroed in on the table behind us. In a booming voice that was almost but not quite friendly, he said, How we doing today? Here's what I wished happened next. I wish I had the presence of mind to hop up and say to the manager, even though he wasn't actually talking to me, I'm doing well, how are you? My friend and I were just getting ready to order some lunch. 
And then I wish I'd have looked at the man sitting there and asked him what he'd like to eat. And I wish we would have walked to the counter together. And I wish I would have bought him his own bacon queso queso burger. And I wish he could have sat with us and eaten his burger and fries because he could have carbs even if I can't. And I wish he'd have told us his story and that we might have found a way to connect him with some friends of ours who could offer some real help. That's the way I wish the story had gone. But here's what actually happened. Before I could even move... I saw a scared, defeated, humiliated man jump up as soon as he heard the manager's voice and still, without making eye contact with anyone, quickly head for the door. And I saw the manager smile, a satisfied smile, and shake his head as he watched him go. He smiled, and I cried in Wendy's. Now I know all about handouts, how they aren't really always helping. Really, I do. I teach classes about it and how food isn't always really the issue. My buying his bacon queso burger wasn't going to change his life, and if we'd, all we'd done is feed him lunch without listening to him, we might have even been enabling his behavior. I know, I know, I know. But do I really think that by not buying him lunch, he's going to somehow magically pull himself up by bootstraps he doesn't even have? That, that someone who's been living on the street and dealing with who knows what, maybe mental illness or an addiction or a trauma or just bad luck, that if I make sure he's hungry enough, that will somehow teach him a lesson and he'll go find himself a job, that laziness is all that's keeping him from it, that if he'd come into Wendy's yesterday and instead of sitting quietly at a table, he'd ask for a job application, that the friendly manager would have hired him. I know it's more complex than that. Side note. I can't help but wonder how long the friendly manager would have let me sit there without ordering. Me with my clean clothes and a lanyard around my neck holding a badge that indicates I probably have some sort of job. I bet he'd let me relax in the air-conditioned restaurant for a good long time as long as no one was waiting for a table. He might even have asked if he could get me something or if I needed help. But that's a privileged discussion for another day, just something to consider. But here's the thing. We sometimes act like there are only two options, either some sort of large-scale institutional response or nothing, one or the other. We forget that there's some middle ground, that while I can't do everything, I can do something, that a lot of times people don't actually get to the programs and the help they need unless individuals introduce them to it. It is a complex issue, but sometimes I think we let ourselves off the hook a little too easily. And church, I'm talking to you. She's still writing here. Don't tell me anymore that poverty and homelessness shouldn't be the government's job. It should be the church. Until you're ready to be the church and help tackle it. That might mean church folks need to work alongside existing government programs. It might mean individual Christians meeting individuals' needs and getting involved in people's lives instead of waiting for the church staff to do it for them. It might mean working with other churches instead of competing with them. It might mean getting to know the folks who come to your food pantry. Thanks for teaching me this, Highland Park Christian Church Food Pantry team. Jesus did not eradicate poverty while he lived here on earth. But he ate with just about everyone he met, especially folks like this person, people who were ignored. I know he would have had time for the guy in Wendy's yesterday, though Jesus probably would have skipped the bacon. And Jesus Jesus probably even would have spoken kindly to the manager, even though I'm not quite ready to do that yet. I know it's not simple, but it's also not as hard as we make it. Let's do better together. 
That's pro-life. That's what it means to care for every life that God creates. And it will set us apart, and sometimes being pro-life will be unpopular. Sometimes people won't like your opinion for it. And you're going to love those people too, because that's pro-life too. And that we will love all life. Maybe the most important thing you can do this week is to remind some other individual that their life matters. I had the opportunity to do that a couple times this week with a lady who was homeless and with a man who was just beating himself up. And everybody needs to hear that, including me, that your life matters to God. So that story, the river coming and the body is floating along, bobbing up for air. We can think of that story as the person on the tree reaching down to maybe save somebody. But we can only think of it in those terms until we first realized that we were the person caught in the flood, that we were the person crushing our knees and our head on the rocks and drowning and breathing in air and the hand coming up and at the very last second reaching up for hope and and that we don't even see someone and suddenly a firm hand grabs ours and yanks us out of the water onto dry land because that is the work of God in our lives and that is the work that God wants to do in your life because your life matters and if you've never said yes God I, I believe you And I believe you gave your life so that I could have real life, real life now and eternal life to come. Then Jesus offers that to you. He gave his life because he cares so much for your life. We would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and be baptized in him and to have real, eternal, abundant life. And if you would like to come up even during this next song and say, yes, I would like that, then we welcome you. If you would like to come up and say, I've been letting people float by for too long. And you just want somebody to pray for you quietly. We'll have some people up front that would be glad to do that as well. And we would always be glad to to meet with you afterwards. If you want to mark on your card, we'd be glad to meet with you and talk with you. Uh, God has a lot to say about life, doesn't he? Would you stand up? Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you care about my life. I don't deserve it. None of us do. But you care about it so much that you gave your son, you gave your life so that we could have life. And we thank you and we pray that we can respond in the right way to you. In Jesus' name, amen.